1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land welcome to reclaim me i'm your host madeline heather reclaim me is a true crime podcast told by those at the center of those crimes the victim survivors the general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media and we're changing that narrative here these interviews are raw and honest so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners so please use your discretion If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service.
3: Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history.
2: Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Maureen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania.
0: The 12-year-old son finally took the stand.
2: As I heard a scream,
0: I heard a thud. It was about this loud.
3: we the jury. Find the defendant Guilty.
1: When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder.
2: Hi fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. I'm dropping an extra episode in your feed this week, and that is an episode with Collier Landry. Collier Landry is the host of the podcast Moving Past Murder, which is the introduction that you just heard then. He is the subject of the podcast. They discuss in detail what we're going to talk about today. And that, sadly, is the fact that Collier's mother, Noreen, was murdered at the hands of his father, and he was the key witness in that crime. He's an incredible human being who's not only dedicated his life to the memory of his mother and you know, talking about her in such a way that she lives on and is never forgotten, but also in activism. He is an incredible activist. And really, throughout the episodes in his podcast, which I have binged all of, they go into so much detail, including communications with his father through things like emails. Now, there is a lot more information that you can get that Collier has created as well. He is also the, I think, producer or the creator of the documentary, A Murder in Mansfield. And Collier has been kind enough to give us all a link to be able to access and watch that because it's not available via streaming services in Australia. So if you're in another country, you might have access to be able to to view it. If not... I'm going to pop a link in the bio for this episode and you'll be able to click on that and watch it there. Collier usually requires people to have subscribed at the $5 level for his Patreon to be able to view it, but he's given us this access. So there is also a button on the link where you can buy him a coffee or donate towards him because this is incredible work that he does and I really want to encourage you to show that love somehow even if it is going and binging and subscribing and rating and reviewing to his podcast. And they're going to have a new podcast coming next year with the amazing Tara Neal, who we do reference through this at at times. And I'm just so excited to have him here because I just, I'm in absolute awe of this man's level of activism and just how much of a genuine and kind person he is. Absolute light. And it's been something that I am just so grateful for to have connected with Collier this year. Now, we do kind of pick up in the middle of a conversation. We were having a talk about, sadly, the fact that Collier's dog passed away, and I didn't want to record that. And then he said, just record it because it's important. So we will dive in midway through a conversation, but you'll understand where we are. And I won't delay any further. Here is the amazing Collier Landry. Thank you for sharing whatever, it. It's,
1: it's, I'm totally fine with all of it. That's what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, well, it's just one of those things. It's just like... um. Yeah, Tara and I have spoken in depth as well about, about dogs and how much they play, and especially as well another uh, victim survivor who's been on the podcast a few times, Kathy, who's got a little um, Border Collie Australian Shepherd, same as Tara. Um, yeah. And it's just like we've all got these like similar dogs, and it's just it gives you purpose.
1: Yeah, it's kind of wild. Yeah, I'm a good. Aussies oh, are good. Uh, they're adorable. Like Dixon is adorable. <laughs> very smart, very sweet. And he was really good with Blondie too. Like he was, you know, cause he's like 500 times her size. <laughs> he was really good with her. And so I just, I just was, you know, as much as I miss her and I'm just, it makes me really sad. And I also felt like this massive connection with my mother, with her too, you know, and to put it in perspective, I had that dog in my life. That dog was in my life almost seven almost well yeah over six years you know six and a half years longer than my mother wow you know what I mean? and so i feel like a lot of that you know i feel like a lot of that energy too so i don't know i was really grateful i'm grateful that it happened the way that it needed to but um it still sucked yeah but absolutely
2: and that grief isn't going to stop sucking as well but it's also nice to look back on some of those times, like even the easier times, like not like ones where you've gone for like a run or something, but just those times where you open the door and you're greeted at the door by like a little wagging tail or something. Like those are the best memories.
1: Well, she would always like barrow under her bed. And then so the door would open and she'd be like, you know, like <laughs> so this little like head with this little covers over it. Like, yeah, it's going to be a lot to – it's going to be a lot to, you know, process over the next, and I had to jump right into work stuff. And then everybody is like, you know, de- all these clients are demanding a lot of things, which is great. But I'm just kind of like, I, I really haven't had a second, you know, I really I yeah. haven't. Had a second. I, and I cut that episode until five 30 this morning or whatever it was. And this, like, I'm just, you know, it's, it's, um it's a lot, but, it's, it's good. It's good. It was a good, I feel good about her. For those of you tuning in, we're talking about my dog, Blondie. Yeah. 17. <laughs> She's four months shy of her 18th birthday.
2: Bless. So she did go quickly, but um, she lived what sounds like an amazing life. And we can share probably a little bit of um, a photo, at least, of her on the, on the podcast. Because, you know, as you heard at the top, we were talking about the role that dogs play in in recovery and trauma and everything as well. But you're hearing um, a strange voice, an American voice. <laughs> I, <wanted> to, <laughs> I haven't introduced you yet, I, but I do want to um, introduce this incredibly amazing, wonderful man, Collier Landry. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. And as I'm known in your country, I'm a bit of a dag sometimes. A,
2: <laughs> a dag. I love that. I'm a dag too.
1: <laughs> I'm a good dag. And then I found out what DAG meant. And I was like, is that? And they're like, no, it's an endearing term. It's because you just are kind of like that. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. Yeah.
2: A DAG is like, yeah, I would say somebody who's very <laughs> sweet and does funny things. And like, yeah, I think it's quite an endearing term. It's not like a, it's not meant to be rude, I don't think.
1: Depends who no, says I it. Know. I guess so. And it's the way it's said, right? I actually enter-
2: can't imagine it not being an endearing term. My nan would always call me a dag. So it's like a a sweet thing, I think. <laughs> you're a dag. It's like when somebody says something like, you're stupid, but like in an I love you way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and just for the listeners, <clears throat> if you're here in my kitchen, I actually have not one, but two jars of Vegemite.
2: It is my favorite. So do you, you came over here once. Did you, is it something that you like?
1: I do like Vegemite a lot. It's good. And I'll tell you what, like I, um, I was in Cannes in France and I was on this boat. It was like this really cool thing. Mm. And, uh, they had a private chef and he was from England and my girlfriend at the time was from Australia and it was this whole thing. And he gave me Marmite and I was like, no mate. This no. Is no, 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 And then we did a blind taste test. So I was this is like the Pepsi Coke challenge here that we had in America years ago. And so, and he and he's like, "I bet you couldn't tell the difference." I could tell the difference. <laughs>
2: yeah, you can always tell the difference. It has to be the right Vegemite. It can't be any kind of other pro mite, marmite. No, thank you.
1: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think they're probably the like you know it's like very sharp, right? Very sharp and very salty. Um, Gives you energy and tastes amazing with like an avocado toast. I mean, you can't overdo it. That's the trick with Vegemite. I think when you give it to an American, they'll take it and they just go like, because everything is in abundance, right? Ketchup, mustard on the hamburger, all this hot dog with relish. You got to just be very, you, you, you know, less is more with Vegemite. But yeah. I think if people did that, then they would go, oh, I like this. You put a little butter on the bread. You put a little bit of the Vegemite over top on the toast. You have it and you go, oh, this is quite nice. I like this.
2: Yeah. I've seen people do like um, taste tests on TikTok and things like that. And you're just like, sweetie, no, <laughs> you're watching it happen going, no, there's so much on there. It's going to be so bad.
1: <laughs> so I actually did it where I, in her kitchen, I, I had um the Vegemite because, you know, and I was dipping it in crackers and i put jam with it like fig jam and the all these different things and she was like telling her like it was so gross like hummus with it with that was not a good that that was not good but <laughs> i would put like you put a little sweet with it too because you get the salty and the sweet and then the 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 hoppy the sort of um uh what is the word i'm with like the yeasty flavor to it it's an interesting palette i mean it's not for everyone for sure but if you use it right it's 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 good
2: I love that so much, and I love that you mentioned it with avocado because that's very Melbourne. So you've you've just you've already broken into the cafe scene here. There you go.
1: That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: um, but thank you for joining me today. Do you mind telling the listeners, um, I guess, a little bit about who you are? Um, you're coming to us from the states. We know that, but what do, what do you do for a living? What do you enjoy? How did we meet? Even. <laughs>
1: How do we meet? That's wild. So um uh my name is Collier Landry. I am a filmmaker. I live in Los Angeles, California, Santa Monica, actually, um, right by the beach. And um I have a podcast called Moving Past Murder. And I have another podcast that I'm starting the beginning of next year with Tara Newell called Survivor Squad. And we interviewed you for Survivor Squad, which is how I made your acquaintance. And um, and you were a fantastic guest. And, um, you know, I, uh, am probably most well known. So my podcast is called moving past murder, but I made a film called a murder in Mansfield with a two time Oscar winner named Barbara Koppel. And it's a documentary about me and my life. And, uh, it was a a true crime sort of documentary that wasn't really a true crime documentary. It was more of like, as variety says, a plea for humanity. And, It is about me going back to my small town in Mansfield, Ohio, and going back 26 years after the murder of my mother by my father, which was one of the largest cases in Ohio history. It was the trial of the century, if you will, in my hometown and county. And I had witnessed my father murder my mother. I heard him murder her on December 31st, 1989. I woke up to the sound of two loud thuds and a scream or woke up to scream, and then heard two loud thuds. These footsteps came down the hall. I had slept with my door open, and they landed in my doorway, and something told me, like, do not look up. And the next morning, when I ran to my mother's bedroom, the sheets were all in disarray. I was looking for blood, and I come downstairs, and my father is sitting on the couch, and I said, where is my mother? And my father said, well, Collier, mommy took a little vacation. And... Right then I was like, it's game on. And no one believed me except for one detective that my father murdered my mother. And over the course of the next 25 days, myself and this detective solved my mother's murder. I found clues that ultimately led them to find my mother's body buried in the basement floor of a house that my father purchased in another state. And it was, he he bought it with his mistress who was pregnant. And it was a fiasco. I uh, I was sent into the foster care system because I was abandoned by both sides of my family, my mother's and my father's. And um, I testified at trial for two days against my father, and he is still incarcerated to this day.
0: Wow. How old hey, were you at film, the time?
1: I was 11 when I witnessed it, and it was 12 when it went to trial. And, you know, I, I grew up with a big... Uh, um, as you can see, a big flair for the arts. And the I, after going through all this massive trauma and I was in the foster care system and I was finally adopted, but I wanted to get out of this small town because Mansfield is very, is, is you know, population at that time, 20,000 people probably in the county. Very small town. Everyone knew who I was. and knew my story. Like I couldn't walk in anywhere without anyone recognizing me and knowing my entire story. And I was really, didn't want that. I wanted to know what it would be like to live life on my own terms. So I went to music school for a couple of years. Um, I ended up dropping out because I said, I just, I want more, (laughs) but I also want better weather. And I decided to move to California, to Los Angeles and to pursue a career in the arts and then specifically landing in filmmaking. And um, I taught myself, how to become a cinematographer and how to become a filmmaker and then ultimately made the film with Barbara Koppel "A murder in Mansfield.
2: That's amazing. So we can access that now. Is it on a specific network or location that people can go and watch that?
1: Actually. So your audience is mostly in Oz. It's not real. It's not available in there from what I understand. It's not available on Amazon or investigation discovery, but I'll tell you what, for your audience, I will give you guys a link to it where you can access it through my website all i ask is just you know <laughs> check out the podcast subscribe and all the <laughs> fun stuff you know? yeah
2: absolutely I'm we'll do that absolutely
1: and also reach out to me they're like we're trying to find your film we can't find it and i have a patreon too that you can go on patreon and then you can subscribe and it's there as well that always helps to keep support the podcast for sure but um but yeah i'm happy to 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 give it to your audience no problem
2: that'd be amazing. Um. So we'll pop pop the link maybe in the show notes this episode um so that people who listen can go and access it. Um but yes, and I love that you called that out. Cause it's 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 not a free service, do you know what I mean? Like this podcasting and stuff, and it's very difficult to be a victim's advocate sometimes because it's like you don't want to put things behind a paywall, but at the same time, you need to make a living. And it's it's a very difficult thing. So sometimes I say to people, you know, you can help for free by You know, like, subscribe, share, all of those things, write a review. I do that at the top and end of each episode as well. But it is as well. It's just like, you know, for the cost of a coffee a week, a month, you could actually help a lot.
1: And it really does. Like that's the thing that's interesting, is that, you know, I mean, I just became an Amazon affiliate and I have like the affiliate links on my YouTube. And, you know, I do these videos and some people it's so weird. I think we talked about this when we were interviewing you. Is people almost become like Entitled, They're like, well, you didn't do an episode. And it's like, do you, like, do you, like the camera that I'm filming myself now looks really good, right? It has amazing colors. It has amazing dynamic range, which are all things that I talk about as a cinematographer, right? This is a $7,000 camera. Like nobody has this. Like my videos, the lighting, it's all very expensive. Like, and this is all my time too. So it's like when I make the content, the microphone, all, all of this, it, it it costs a lot of money to do this. And you're doing it for free, and then you're in this double edged sword. You're like, you put out the information. So many people respond to it. They're like, oh my god, I'm so glad I found your channel. I saw you on TikTok. I, um, your stuff is amazing. Your story is amazing, and it's like great. Just a little bit just helps, you know, it, it, because it it it's it's so time. Like I didn't sleep last night because I had to put an episode out, and I was so far behind because I'm also working at the same time. So you have to work, and I also work in the creative field, which is not the most stable of professions, let's just especially at this time of year around Christmas, everything goes down, and there's no work so at the same time you're you're struggling to do that, and then you're trying to create really good content that's engaging and it's also helping people and have an impact and I feel like people are so quick to like, oh, go support some. Willy nilly podcast that makes fun of like videos and stuff like that. They're like, oh, I'll buy this. But it's like when something that is really impacting people are like, oh, I don't know if I can support that or I don't know if I can do that. And it's like, I saw this interesting thing once, you know, it, it was like on Instagram like a week ago. And somebody said, you know, I want it was like maybe Gary Vee or somebody like, but was like one of those people. that said, you know, why do you say, oh, let's go to my friend's restaurant? He'll give us a deal. Well, yes, I'll go to my I saw this. And it's like, and I I was like, God, I'm so glad this guy called it out. Cause it's like, don't you go, I want to go support my friends because I want to, to help them. I I'd rather pay more. And I have that mentality. I'm that guy. Like I always, of course, want like a hookup or something for like things or Hey, I'll trade you mate. Like you you want this, I'll do this for you. You know what I mean? But like, if it's my friends, I'm like, I'm there to support. And yeah, let me do X, Y, and Z, you know, because let me run up the tab. Let me. Spend more money. Let me support your establishment. Because I actually know that that's going to come back to me because you're the type of person that sends the elevator back down. It's all about sending the elevator back down. And I think if more people thought that way, the world would be a much better place.
2: A hundred percent. the same thing, like, you know, bringing people to different events. You know, if somebody has got a show coming out, I'm the one bringing 20 people, you know, you do everything that you can to support those people. And I saw that video too. And I was like, Brilliant. Because people will go to somebody's bar opening or something and be like, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to get free drinks when we get there. And it's like, this is your friend and they they need to cover the costs. They need to everything. I'm like, don't you want them to, you know, and it's the same thing with this stuff. It's just like, you know, even a, a like or a comment or a reshare or sending it to somebody else or, you know, it just takes that community level to come, come along with you and it can do so much and it, that's, you know, it is 100%.
1: Do so much because, and, and this is where I, you know, and I think that one of our things that we were when uh Tara and I interviewed you, which is you know a very big hot button issue. You know, I'm glad to see it's a hot button issue, I've been thinking about it for decades, but um, but also didn't really become as keenly aware of it just because I wasn't in the true crime space. But is ethical true crime, right? And you'll have you have podcasts that make Millions, sometimes millions a month <laughs> that are full on empires that have made so much money off of other people's suffering. And I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to pick on podcasting, but we're on a podcast. We're both podcasters. I'm a filmmaker too, so I can talk about that too, as television and this. But somebody, when I, right before I went viral on TikTok a few months ago, somebody posted and they go, Oh, how dare you profit on, off your mother's murder? Oh, it's so disgusting. And I was like, First of all, my mother was murdered, but my mother wouldn't have had, like, I'm the one that I'm the one that almost got killed in the process too, by the way, you know, I, I, I'm the one that lost everything as well. Like my mother lost her life and I love my mother and I've done everything for my mother since then. Right. But, you know, they're trying to shame you. And it's interesting and then people were like, um, bro, he's got like 300 followers. Like, how is he making money? He's actually just sharing information. Like, this is good. And then of course it blew up. And it's not like when you're on TikTok and you have 300, I have like 300,000 followers. I'm not making any money from that. I think I made $30, but it's getting that information out there. But it's like, why is it you're quick to excoriate me for telling my own story that is mine to tell, but you're not on, you know, uh, tweeting at Dateline, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, ratioing every, every comment they have when they are profiting off of other people that has nothing to do with them. It's not their story to share, right? And I'm not saying that they, people can't do that. By the way, I know there are some people that are very hardcore. They're like, "Oh, we don't feel anybody has the right to do that except the victims." But sometimes the victims don't aren't like yourself or myself or later charismatic that are open that are out there talking about it, sharing their message. They want to be left the fuck alone. Can I say? Yeah. Can I say that?
2: Yeah, please <laughs> swear away. But- <laughs> the,
1: they want to be left the fuck alone, and they you know they just want to live their life, and I and I completely respect that. So then you have somebody like me that doesn't shut the fuck up. That we'll talk about this all day, and I don't mind. You can come at me all day. You can say whatever you want to me because I've put myself in that space. I'm yeah. aware. I, look, I work in entertainment. I've worked in the the entertainment business for almost twenty years. That's two decades I've been doing this. I am a very well aware of working with high profile talent. Like what it's like when I see you know movie stars and people are like, oh, don't pick on there, or, don't do this and that. Or, it's like they, okay, they're making millions and millions of dollars, and they put themselves out there in the public light, they, and, 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 and then and then when they get upset about things, it's like, it's like, well, you, you've no right to be upset because you put yourself in that position. You're getting these brand deals because you are who you are, all these things. So to the victor come the spoils. And then also, you know, the toils, right. I just made that up by the way. Um, but that, the thing is, is that you, you do, know, I, I feel like the victims owning the message only goes so far too, because you need other people to share that. But also it's that send the elevator back down. If you're going to do a podcast about me and mention my story, say, hey, he's got a podcast. Check out Moving Past Murder at Collier Landry. You know what I mean? That's cool. And I think that people don't, I think they're becoming aware of that. And my thing for getting into this space or even telling me, I didn't even enter this space. Like I just sort of, it was forced upon me, right? But I was always very obsessed As from a young age, of the way that we looked at cases and that the way that these things unfold, because we'll sit there and we'll go, okay, you know, the bad guy goes to jail, the the state gets his restitution, the victim is dead, the gavel hits, and we say next, and we go on to the next one, and we never really look or examine or think about or take pause to reflect on how these crimes affect the ancillary victims not just the direct victim the ancillary victims the friends the family member the schoolmates the communities what precedent does it set for other people that might want to do something we never look at those consequences of violence and that's where i became passionate about that's what motivated me to go on the journey that i was i was like i'm going and i was like i'm not and i wasn't trying to be a true crime person I was like, I just want to share my story so people understand that there are people that are affected by this that is far reaching beyond the immediate casualties. It's a ripple effect, it's the butterfly effect, whatever you want to call it. And if you're a citizen of the world or a citizen of your community or whatever you want to look at it as, you need to be aware of that and you need to understand that and understand how trauma affects people and how it's residual and intergenerational trauma and things of that nature that really. Really affect communities, and 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 it, it, I can go on and on about this. But that became my motivating factor for like, okay, I want to do this. And then I discovered like how insidious true crime was, and I was like, well, wait. I was just fascinated. Like, why are people fascinated by murders and murder shows? Like, it's it, like, do you understand what happens in murder? Like, it's the worst thing in the world. Like, your 30 minute podcast episode is the worst day of someone's life. Yeah. So I became fascinated with why people were into it. And I do understand that, like, like, there's a lot of fascination around like the detective work. Like, there's a show called Forensic Files, right? And I interviewed a woman who runs a blog called Forensic Files. Now she's had a book, right over here. I'm actually in the book. I gave an interview. um, You know, and we discussed like I I was like, I'm curious about like what are people's obsession with true crime? But you know, shows like Forensic Files they highlight the police work, the detective work, and what caught. The people and also the person who created this show apparently is very conscientious about victims like won't if they interview a victim in an episode they will not put like you know crime scene photos they won't put certain things that are triggering in case the victim watches it to see themselves and then see something they don't want to see they were really sensitive about that that's what i've been told i mean i don't i've only watched my own episode of forensic files and not even really but those types of shows i understand what people want to understand the psychology behind it but like if people are fascinated with like ted bundy and serial killers and you know, I I, I kind of go, I, I don't understand that because if you actually really understood how horrific it is, you know, you'd stop glamorizing these people.
2: Yeah. And a hundred percent, because this is what we've seen, you know, there's a very famous Collingwood footballer, you know, who I love, Jack Guinnavan, who just recently I think is in the States and for Halloween dressed up as Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, even though he knew that it wasn't going to be a good idea, and people are kind of saying, you know, stop being too soft. People can't dress up as anything anymore. And it's just like this person literally murdered so many people that he's been repopularized into pop culture through a Netflix show that has his name as the title. And I said to so many people, I've boycotted it. I will not watch it because I think this is the epitome of glamorizing a serial killer and unethical true crime because none of the victims' families were consulted on it. And if you can't walk out of there knowing the victims' names and and to have them be involved in the process, you know, they're not profiting off it. They're not getting anything. This person who's just posted this multi-million dollar Netflix series is probably now, you know, going to bed in buckets of money. And it's not about the money all the time. But if you ethically wow. consulted with people about the things that have impacted them the most in their lives, that you're making this about them, not about glamorizing somebody who Murdered people, and if you want to stop murder happening, making people icons and pop culture figures is not the way to do it. Same thing with mass shooters; like it's just, it's so disgusting to me that somebody could not see the difference between potentially dressing up as something like a Nazi and then dressing up as Jeffrey Dahmer because one of them they think is funny.
1: And and you know, here's the thing; it's interesting because I'm for you know, first of all, you said. Whoever made the show is in buckets of money. Ryan Murphy has been going to bed in buckets of money for almost a decade now after <laughs> glee and all these things. But what I think is interesting is is, you know, it's one thing if it's just a random person at a party that dresses up as Dahmer and does the whole thing. It's quite another when you're a celebrity and a high-profile person because you have to recognize that you have a platform and now you're glorifying this. What I find is interesting. Or why it's not interesting is why, why not highlight the victims? But the thing where I say, where I really draw the line and where I get upset, and this was like recently, this came when I met Tara and she was talking to me about Dirty John and I wasn't really aware of Dirty John and I didn't, I watched, I only watched the part of the show because my friends were working on it. Like I had no idea what it was. I did no idea it was a podcast or a true crime thing or whatever. And I watched like an episode and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Okay. Oh, cool. My friend was on this. Okay. Like that's why I watch it to support. Right. But then I started thinking, you know, the thing that upsets me is that like, again, you're going to do somebody's story. You're going to do my mother's story or whatever. And I don't like, for me, I don't really care. It doesn't really bother me because I got a thick fucking skin, you know, and I've been through. I've been through some of the worst shit that nobody, that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. You know what I mean? So I've earned my stripes. And like, if people do stuff like that, I'm just like, whatever. Um, And ironically, they haven't, which is the really crazy thing. Is I, I, and I, and when I talked to Tara, I became really cognizant of like, wow, I have maintained control of my story from Jump Street. It was an episode of Forensic Files, which is one of the most popular episodes ever. It's like top 10 out of 400 some episodes. Um, And they asked me to be on it. They were going to pay me. I said, you need to pay me more money. And so I wasn't on it. I was glad about that. And then I made a film. And I took control of that, unbeknownst to me, just because I was like, I won't let anybody do anything with this until I do something with it, right? Right. I'm going to be the one to do it. And it's not, even, it wasn't like money because I, I didn't, you know, make it hardly a dime from the documentary. You know, nobody makes documentaries to, to get rich, that's for sure. Um, But what I, but I wanted to control that narrative. You know, I want to control the narrative to a certain degree where you don't glorify someone like my father. You don't glorify murder. You don't, you know, and I think that's the the big key when creators make this content is like, why are you making it? Who are you making it for? And like, what is the, is it for profit? Okay, great. If it's for profit, then you can pay people. If your show makes X amount of dollars an episode, then you can pay that person to be a guest, or you can say, hey, can I pay you? Can I donate it to some a cause that you're that you're sponsoring? Can I do this for you? You know what I mean? So I always felt like that was a good way to do it. Or can I give you a shout out? Can I boost what you're doing? Oh, you have a podcast? Great! Can I give you a shout out of that? Can I put your trailer on my show? I've had people do that, and it's um it's cool because it's just a it's like the thought behind it. It's like when you ignore the victims and create you you know as a creator you can't and like I said I've worked in film and TV for you know almost two decades, so I get it. And you want to have creative liberties as a creator, but also when you're dealing with things like this where it's not like a fantasy, it's like reality, you do, it does behoove you to involve the people if you can, because it will also make for a better story. Like nobody can tell my story but me. And if they go to try to tell my story, how do you think that's going to come off? It's probably going to come off as pretty inauthentic because, and not necessarily that it has to be authentic, but if they don't really know me, they're not going to be able to tell that story, right? yeah they're going to be like oh, collier's not like that or that's not what the, how this went down you know um so i feel like you know it's at this crossroads but again for me it was all about like let's look at what these acts the consequences of violence and when i set out to make my film i said you know i want to i want to tell my mother's story i want to get that out there i want to heal myself. And I want to change one person's life. What happened is, is, because I wanted to speak to that kid who was in foster care, who was scared, who had lost his whole world, his dog, his family, like everything. And let them know that you're going to be okay. The impact was like tens of thousands of people reaching out to me. You know, and then the podcast and everything and people see me on TikTok and then they're inspired by the story. And that's incredible, like that's absolutely incredible to be able to do that.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what, with what you were just saying. And I think you know it's important to highlight anybody who was involved's voice because this isn't somebody you know. When we talk about like murder being the most horrific crime, but also the additional crimes that happen. You know, outside of that, and what societally can happen when we only highlight other people's voices about certain crimes. So, one of the most common questions I get from different victim survivors, specifically, is, you know, I I would like to come onto the podcast and share my story, but I don't think mine is bad enough, and yeah. I feel that. Yeah, I feel the hor- the horrific nature of crime is being glamorized into it must be at this the most horrendous and horrific end for it to be valid. And I think there are those crimes that happen, like your mother's murder being one of them, you being a child. Like this is, it's it's horrible to think that somebody's had to go through this, but you telling your story as a person, I think takes away from the glamorization of it and talks to other people in the community more where they can be like, my, my experience wasn't that, but it doesn't, it doesn't invalidate their experiences. Does that make exactly.
1: sense? Like yeah. no, that's what we talked about. And that's the thing, like when people reach out to me, they they, they say the exact same. They gloss over it and they go, Well, you know, my money isn't as horrible as yours. And I'm like, and I'm glad. Like, but that doesn't make it any less impactful in your life or less of a trauma. This isn't like a competition. It's not a dick measuring contest for Christ's sake. Yeah. It's it literally is it 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 is it it's affected you and it's it, it's it's real for you now on the flip side to that i am glad bec- that i am able to share my story and that it is so horrific that people do have that reaction because on the flip side of that some of those people go wow my i didn't have it that bad get your shit together like look at what that guy is doing. Cause that's what I do. When I look at people, I find people that motivate me. I'm like, I want to be like that. Like that guy can do it. I can do that too. Or that woman can do that. I can do that too. They're courageous. I admire that in them. And they find that. And that is really, really cool because I go, okay, cool. So you saw that my trauma was so massive and then said, mine is not equal. Like I had both my parents, but my stepfather was abusive, which is still a horrible thing. And whatever you're like, I maybe need to get past this, maybe get off the bottle you know, get, get, you know, get, get off this cycle of dating, you know, um, violent men or, or women or, 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 or financial, you know, just, just chaos all the time or whatever it is. Right. Like if they see a story that really that's, they think is so over the top and see that that person's made that and inspires them to do that. Like, that's a, a wonderful thing. Like it makes yeah. me so happy when people say that, like somebody was like, I was strong out on heroin. I was just that." like, because I was abused. I had, you know, I had a, a, a kid who was going to kill himself because his dad killed his mom. And he, he said the day that I was making plans to kill myself, this was the day I turn on Amazon, the thing pops up. I watched your movie, changed my fucking life. That's why I'm here. I was wow, like, what? And I feel like I'm making that up. That's that's true. And that person has slid in my DMs years ago and I just discovered it like a year ago. And I was like, oh my God. Like that's, inc- I mean, I just was, you talk about being taken aback. Like that is just like, that's like knock your dick in the dirt shit. Like the- I had that type of impact on you. That is incredible. Like that is what I am talking about. Yeah, that absolutely. Is what makes it all worth it. And that just gave that. me-
2: full body chills. Like when you said that, that's full body. And it is, it's it's incredible that by doing this, that you can impact those people. Um, but we did start off the, at the beginning, you did talk a little bit about your story. Do you mind, um, telling the listeners a little bit about maybe, I think, you know, in terms of what I would want to, want to ask you if you, in in whatever level of detail you want to talk about it, but were there okay. things that happened before this like the murder of your mother occurred were there red flags or things that you knew were happening that were not right
1: oh yeah i mean so you know i just sort of got on that diatribe of just saying all this stuff and just kind of went on a tangent but yeah a couple of things so sometimes like people have seen the film and they've gone you know yeah just a they think it's a crime of passion i'm like no it's premeditated murder my father's a psychopath um but you know, you talk about these patterns and these things that have happened. So growing up, my, so my, I was always with my mother. Like my mother was my constant companion. My mother was like the light of my world. And I was, and I was hers too. But, you know, I spent like ninety some percent of my time with my mother and my father was abusive, My father was, my father was an asshole. He also had a real proclivity towards violence, towards both myself and my mother, but also violent movies and television shows and things. And he's a narcissist. And, you know, I always knew that even though my father was a doctor and, you know, there's that healing aspect and he was a great doctor and I would see him interact with patients and I'd be like, okay, I see this. On the flip side, like I would... Um, I knew deep down inside that the situation that I was growing up in wasn't the most normal, <laughs> even though I thought I had a normal upbringing. Because then I had you know kids whose family was divorced and stuff like that. But like my father had, my father had a, 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 such a violent temper that would turn on it like like that, and he would just become apoplectic and just you know I remember like. We were making like Saturday morning breakfast in the kitchen with my mom and I dropped an egg on the floor and he, he started threatening, he was going to kill me and screaming and slammed the door and the shattered the windows. And I mean, just, you know, he, he was a rageaholic too. And, you know, so I didn't really like him, but leading up to the, my mother's murder. So in 1989, so Especially around like Father's Day of 1989, my father took me to his office and then he was, he stopped to get like a suntan at the suntan place. And this woman who I'd met one time before, who he told me was a patient, had shown up and she had two radio controlled cars. And I noticed that she had a ring on her finger, which is a very unique diamond ring. And I said, Oh, my mommy has a ring like that. And she just kind of giggled and looked at my father. And then I was playing with the radio control car, and I turn and I look, and he's making out with her. And of course, like I'm a kid, you know, I'm whatever 11 years old at the time. I don't really, I, I know that, that that's in movies and it's romantic. I'd never even seen my parents kiss like that, but I knew it was not a friendly kiss. And I, um, you know, I, I get in the car with my father, and he says to me, "Okay," he goes, um, and I was just kind of like weirded out, like, "What did I just see?" And he says, "Hey, you know, um, don't tell your tell mommy." That don't tell mommy that we saw Sherry. Tell mommy that I gave you the radio control cars as a reward for um, getting good grades at school.
3: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: And I came to we came to my office and I gave them to you as a present. And I was like, okay. And so we go out that night for Father's Day and I get really sick to my stomach because I've just lied to my mother about something that I know is wrong to do. And I never lied to my mother. And so the next morning I was in the driveway playing with a radio control car and the guilt was so overwhelming. I was so sick that night. I was vomiting, you know, just because I was sick. I can't believe I did what I had just done. And I sat my mother down, I came inside with a radio control car, and I, and I said, Mommy, I want to talk to you. And I, and I said, Sit down. And I said, I think daddy's having an affair. And I told her why. I told her about the ring. I told her about the woman and, and then him, them kissing and how it wasn't a friendly kiss. And my mom said, Well, you know, I'm 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 not pleased that you lied to me, but I understand your father asked you to do it, and I'm not mad at you, and I thank you for telling me the truth. And then she went into the house and I heard lots of yelling on the phone and different things like that. And so my mother, unbeknownst to me at the time, my mother, uh, and we had just adopted a little girl from Taiwan. She was two years old at the time. And my mother had sort of an agreement with my father, which is, Jack, you go do whatever the fuck you want. You can, you know, you can be a womanizer. You can do all of this. Don't involve our son. And my father was, my father was a woman. I was, he many girlfriends, many, uh, this, he was a doctor. He got a lot of trouble in the hospital. He got kicked out, all this stuff. Right. But, um, but I, of course, didn't know any of this. And, um, but the, the line in the sand for her was like, don't involve our son. And of course, as narcissists do, <laughs> or as psychopaths do, they have no. there's no rules. There's no parameters. It's like, well, screw you. I'll do whatever I want. I'm doing whatever I want. Cause it's my entitled. I'm entitled to do whatever I want. Right. Yeah. And um. That was it, and my mother filed for divorce, and it was for it. It was really nasty, and he would he would I would spend time with him, and he'd be with the girlfriend and her kids, or or we'd run into them at like a Kmart or something, and be like, "Oh, look who's here, it's Sherry," and and I was just like sick to my stomach. And then my mom, you know, who had put my father through medical school, who had taken care of the household, he was now starving out, and he would say to me things like, "You know, I, I went to a private school." in this small town. And he was like, you're going to go to public school. Your mom's going to be, you're going to be living on welfare when I'm done with you guys. Uh, your, your mom's going to be working at McDonald's, you know, just all this like really horrible shit that you say to a child, right? Your own son. And, um, my mother says to me in November of 1989, she says, we were driving to this place called Bob Evans. It's like a restaurant here in the States, Midwest mostly. And she says, you know, Collier, I want you to know something. If anything ever happens to me, your father probably had me killed or he did something to me. Wow. My father has mafia connections, yada yada. And I was like, what, mommy? Like I don't get yeah, like, what? And she you know, and I became very concerned that it happened. <laughs> and the thing was is that like again, like I was saying before, a lot of people think it's it was like a crime of passion, and my father claims it's this and that. He's changed the story over the years many, many times but at the end of the day it was premeditated murder my father bought a house to bury my mother's body underneath he specifically asked about lowering the basement floor he he you know the tarp that my mother it was like my mother's burial shroud if you will was on our front porch for like 6 months like the the astro the the indoor outdoor carpeting he had purchased it was on our dad like on our in our sunroom um you know he uh you know, he planned everything, and I think that ultimately for him is as a psychopath was, you, you know, you feel wronged, or they these people feel wronged, and they just, you know, he's it, like, "You're coming, you're, you know, you're not divorcing me, you're not going to get away with this." And he's literally has a pregnant girlfriend who is expecting like any day now, you know. Yeah. And I mean, my sister, my half sister, was born twelve days before my, before my father was arrested. So it is um it is just, and this again goes back to what I said about violence and, and the consequences of violence. It's not worth it. Like my father was a doctor. He had plenty of money. So it wasn't about the money. It, it really wasn't. And he was already winning the divorce. He was going to get away with whatever he wanted. And, you know, that, that man never had consequences in his life for his actions. And he, you know, it got to this, this point, you know, where I I think he was just like, you know, you're not going to divorce me. That's uh, Even though it's like, bro, you won. You're, you have a new family that you're going to start with? A, a girlfriend that's 20 years younger than you? Like, I think everybody goes, that's winning, right? I mean, you're a scumbag, but like, you, you've won. And uh, it's just, that wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, you talk about Jeffrey Dahmer and Psychopaths, like, it's never enough. The bloodlust is never enough. And I firmly yeah. believe if I hadn't stopped him, if he hadn't got caught, it would have happened again. You know, you you
2: mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer there, but it sounds like, you know, it was all well, this guy's behavior, your father's behavior is um, that of a consistent domestic abuser and coercive controller. You know, they they control everything around them and it is about power and control.
1: And it's... Master yeah. manipulator and... Also, on top of that, there's a whole other layer to this, and you'll understand this. The reason why my mother's side of the family didn't want anything to do with me is because two years prior to that, in 1987, 1988, my father had molested their two daughters while giving them physicals as a doctor, and I came to find out after all of this that he was going to be arrested for that in the state of Maryland. But the girls were so traumatized that they couldn't bring it themselves to testify. So they had to drop the charges. So you tell me if he gets away with murdering my mother and burying her underneath the basement floor and he's living in there with his new girlfriend and and children, he's not going to do it again? That's the whole thing with these people. And that's why people got to be, you got to be, they don't, that's the, this is the, This now you got me started. This is the problem. It's just because of our conversation. I'm thinking about this. This is the problem with exalting this behavior or these people. They don't, the, the, people don't understand how dangerous this is and how devastating it is. So when you're watching and you're listening and you're consuming, you're, oh yeah, like, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Ted Bundy's everybody, uh, Zach Efron played him and I guess he's really handsome or something and like women are in love with him. Ted Bundy. Like, do you understand that this is a person that that did horrific things? I mean, I don't know anything about the murders, but I'm I'm just going to assume that it's not pleasant. Horrible. It's, it's horrible things to people. You know, you think about the Manson family, right? And like dr- drilling people, they're, like lobotomizing people. It's horrible kidnap torture all those things you know and then you you put these people in, like do you understand like if you think and, 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 and if you talk to a logical person they go like could, could you do that you go no i'm like then can you understand how fucking deranged you have to be to actually be able to do that to another human another living creature let, let alone a human being that can interact and talk with you and 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 plead for their life and you have no nothing there like that's what people don't understand. Yeah. Is that by glorifying this behavior or these people, you, you, you're not exonerating them, but you are, you're putting them on a pedestal almost. It's, it's, it's very, very dangerous. Yeah. For a lot of level, for a lot of reasons.
2: And I think as well, like the, the thing that we do, and we glorify consistently as domestic abuse. So, some body will say things like it's just a domestic, and it's like think about the cohort of people who are domestic abusers. Think about the subset of that cohort that are psychopathic, narcissistic, um, who have this coercive, controlling behavior, who are omnipresent, who are who believe that they are, you know, untouchable in many ways if somebody decides to leave them and you're, I think it's 70% of domestic violence homicides happen upon the partner leaving. So like, if you think about what, you know, led up to this time, it's, it's, it's horrible abuse by somebody. It's somebody that, you know, and this is where prevention comes into it as well, because it's like you glorify a case of somebody and you put this serial killer in front of them, you're not seeing everything else that went on behind the scenes. You're not seeing the, the horrible abuse that you had to go through as a child, the threat to your life that was there, the ripple effects on the pond that have had to happen. And it's something that is so just glossed over in many cases. And it's just like, you know, in this case as well, it's like your mum lost her life at the hands of somebody who didn't have to do that, but being powerful and in control meant more to him than killing her and ruining, you know, what he thought was your childhood, do you know what I mean? Like it's just the entitlement of somebody to do this is is utterly horrific and that needs to not be understated and domestic abuse needs to not be understated. We need to not joke around about the threat that somebody who's violent in the home poses to not only the people in the home,
1: and yeah, I mean, well said. And I don't, I want to be careful to say like, you know, all like you, you get away with one crime, you're going to keep committing and you'll, you'll escalate the crimes. I don't believe that's necessarily true in the criminal justice system. I don't think if someone's a petty thief, shop, serial shoplifter, they're going to go, you know, and, and kill a bunch of people. I don't think that that's statistically accurate. But I will say that in terms of, these domestic situations, whereas let's just be real. It's like 95% of violence of men against women. Let's just keep it real. <laughs> I'm sure that there's the other 5%, which I'm kind of like, well, I mean, that's okay, I guess. Um, because there's just been so much abuse placed on women. Um, but I think that, you know, they get away with it and then they just keep pushing. and it, And for some people, I think an honest person might go, you know, look, I, um, they, they, they go, like, that happened and I, and I didn't go to jail. Like, she didn't report. Like, I, I will never do that. Like, I can't believe I did that. Like, I can't believe I lost my temper and, and haul off and hit her or beat the shit out of her or whatever. You know what I mean? I think there are some people that get scare themselves and go, I can't believe I just did that. And then they, they, it never happens again. But then there's the other side. They go, oh, I got away with that. Let me see how far I can go here. Let me see how far I can go here. Let me see how far I can go here, you know, because it makes them feel good because ultimately like, let's just, you know, there's something missing inside that they're trying to fill, right? By doing that, I don't think it's just human nature. I do, I do believe in a lot of ways though, I will stop myself. I do believe that some people are born evil. And that was like when I was sitting there with my father in the prison, I just sort of was like, okay, I don't really have a justification for what you did. I think some people are just born evil you know what I mean? So I, I, I do believe that I do believe that I, you know, I think, you know, you look at the, the, the largest homicide of, uh, in modern history being the Holocaust, right? You, you know, that is just, that is just a pure evil and hatred and just a, something that is un, unthinkable to me, unspeakable. You know, there's a lot, you know, there's, recently, there's a lot of talk about this in, in anti-Semitism in the United States recently. And, and, um, Especially in the basketball world, which is just really unfortunate, right? But yeah. um, you know, it's just like people on bridges here in LA hanging out, like, oh, screw the Jews. It's like, what, like, what is wrong with you, or or Holocaust deniers? I'm like, what is wrong? Like, you don't have to be like, like at some point, common sense wins. But I, I started, I was thinking about it yesterday because it's it's just it's come up in the last like week. I'm just like, how can people? deny that or glorify that and that just the the hate and just and and you look at that and go yeah that's just that's what pure that's the face of evil Mm. to do that you know but again like i remember when i was looking and i had a a relationship with my father for decades because i had to make a film i wanted to tell the story so i kept in touch with him you know we had a relationship and also i was Going through my own situation of trying to deal with all this and try to find out like why this happens and try to try to sort of reason and rationalize it, right? Yeah. Then you just come to this conclusion that you're just like, I am not the first of all. I'm not this person. I will never be this person. I don't have it in me to be this person. And second of all, like just I, I don't. I can't give it this man. It's not that you you need to give somebody an excuse to commit a murder. Did it? I'm not saying that. But like you go, okay, did they have a messed up childhood? Did they have this, that, and the other? And you go. I found things out about my father. I was like, he just didn't have that. Like, I thought, okay, my grandfather was, a, you know, an alcoholic. So like, maybe he, it, it was a lot of domestic abuse. Nope. That was barking up the wrong tree. And I didn't think that anyways, but I was like, maybe I'm looking for something to sort of rationalize this. Cause this is what we do. I mean, I did a Ted talk about this. we like, we try to rationalize these horrific events, right? It'd be like, okay, like the, uh, there has to be the reason. And then you realize there is no reason. Yeah. They're just what is born evil. Like they just do this. They just, they they you know it's what is it the the batman movie directed by Christopher Nolan and Michael Caine says to you know um uh Christian Bale, uh Christian Bale is playing Batman or Bruce Wayne he says you know some men just want to watch the world burn it's true it really is i mean we're seeing that obviously in places around the world right now you just go and i mean that's an important reason to talk about true crime and talk about these things is to understand the mentality of the of the person that you're dealing with
2: there's absolutely. And I think, you know, what Tara and yourself are doing as well with highlighting the red flags, maybe to look out for things, prevention methods and things as well. I think it's also, you know, incredibly insightful for you to say exactly how you feel. And I think that's, you know, to say that somebody is just pure evil. You know, I always think about it from like the biopsychosocial model where you've got to have things that align in a certain way to make a serial killer, for example. But that doesn't necessarily come across or meet that, that could have happened when they're born. And I just, you know, somebody's propensity for violence and everything like that, somebody's actions, we're rational people and you said before, you know, you wish common sense was more prevalent and I'm sitting here going like I feel the same but common sense is not that common. And when you're a rational, normal person who doesn't have a propensity for violence or doesn't want to hurt other people, how do you rationalize the actions of somebody that is completely insane? And I think that's the thing is like, you can't, you can't rationalize their actions. You can't understand why they were in that place. And you want to, because, you know, somehow they must've had a reason or something, but even if they don't, even if the reason is simply to be in control, that is their reason. And we will never understand that. And that's something that's so hard to understand and let go as like a a person. And you have to understand that when people as well are are consuming this true crime content, the doctor down the road, who's really nice to you and is a wonderful diagnostician or whatever, and who's really charming, that that person still could pose a danger and threat to you. Just because he's got doctor in front of his name does not mean that he's not potentially a bad person
1: you know, and exactly and to your point like I'm sitting here I was just starting to smirk because I just you know one of the things that you know again I <laughs> I i you know I started a podcast, you know to tell my story and to help others it was sort of a continuation of the film. I definitely love the sound of my own voice, so of course, why wouldn't I do it? it's also helping people, but one of the things is when you're you're <laughs> you you meet other people that are in the true crime space or or you know, that are the, you know, I talked to Chris Hansen about this to to catch a predator for years and predator as I caught is his podcast. And he, you know, I was fascinated with Chris because I, you know, even though it was a show, like I still was really into what the work he was doing because he was exposing something that was a a very insidious underbelly. And unfortunately that it's just, there's a never ending cycle of these stories because it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's child sexual abuse is just, it's rampant, right? But we're talking about the armchair detectives and, and the people that are obsessed with true crime. And it's like, these people want to talk to, you know, oh, I want to talk to a serial killer or whatever, or I want to talk to... You can't talk to these people unless you got skin in the game. You know what I mean? You can't talk. Like, I can talk to my father. He murdered my mother and he was going to kill me. He turned my whole world upside down. You know? um, I can talk to him on that level because I... Like that shit don't fly with me. These other people that kind of come into this world that think that they're smarter or they're going to be the one to crack the case. They're just being manipulated. It's like you, you are so stupid and so arrogant that you think that you're going to go in there and do this. You don't have any skin in the game. So you don't have any fire inside you that will literally be the one that can turn the screws on them. I can, I am that person like, because I've been there and it sucks. But that's the only person that gets in their head. So if they think that they can do this. I had a stalker. And uh it was a horrific experience. But not bad as bad as I mean, I think stalking is one of the, you know, it's 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 uh, a good friend of mine and, and Tara's Lenora Clare. I was shooting a pilot with her, and she said, you know, stalking is murder in slow motion. And I was like, that is fucking heavy and so accurate. And and just so unfortunate. But one of the things that she did is she reached out to my father and started being a pen pal with him talking about me and then sent me those letters, which was like, you talk about low blows, right? That is just like the ultimate, right? But I was reading them, you know, and I looked at the correspondence and then I had seen that my father, of course, and I never opened the, the email that he sent me. But like she thinks that she's somehow getting to him to get to me and he's playing her on the other side. Because that's what these people do. It's just, it, it, if you can call them people, like it's just, it's here's this person playing a six twisted game to try to get to me, to cause me emotional and physical pain for whatever that is. And then they go and deal with this other person that then takes them and tw- and, and just, it, it just, they chew them up and spit them out for breakfast. It's like trying to, it's like you're learning how to play basketball and you go up against Michael Jordan. You're going to get schooled and you're yeah. going to, you're going to what this happened? Like that's, that's the thing until you have serious skin in the game in like true crime and, then you're, and if you're trying you're trying to be this person's like oh i'm going to figure this out i'm going to crack this case i'm going to do this. if you don't have that thing inside you like you're not it, it, it's it, at a certain point you're not going to be able to reach that you're you don't understand that that psyche you know what I mean? And that's an interesting thing. And I think a lot of people forget that, like when they're watching things and they're really obsessed and it's like, you'll never know that. And guess what? That's a really good thing. You don't want to know that world. You don't want to know what it's like. You know, the other day I said on my podcast, uh, I was thinking about it. I have spent over my entire life close to a year in prison. Not because I did anything wrong, but because over the years of going to see my father and having a relationship and going inside the prison and, and working, in, and I, I've been inside the prison, not just in the film, but otherwise, you know, I used to go and, uh, you know, you tutor guys inside his prison on how to use Final Cut Pro, which is an editing software, because they had a whole production studio there. And that was all leading up to the film, because I was like, I want to get this access, right? I thought, like, I have spent a year in prison. I mean, I walked out every day as a free man. But I was like, that's wild when you think about that.
3: Yeah.
2: And the ripple effects of that, like on your life and entering
1: that world. And I'm not also saying, because I also massively believe in, in rehabilitation. And I also believe that the incarceration system in the United States is completely fucked. Um, it's a system and it's, and and people do say, Oh, the system is broken. No, the system is doing exactly what it's, what it was built, built to do, you know? Um, but you know, it needs to be reformed. And, but I do think on the flip side that people can commit crimes, they can see the other ways, they can come out if you give them the tools. They can come out, they can be rehabilitated, they can be productive members of society, absolutely. I don't think it's a throwaway, you know, the, the, you know, know, lock them up and throw away the key situation, which a lot of people do too, because again, it goes back to what I said at the start of this interview. I was so passionate about the consequences of violence, the impact on all of this, right? Because we go, bad guy goes to jail, victim is dead, state gets his restitution, gavel hits, so we say next. Bad guy goes to jail. Boom, gavel hits that. We did. we we. Okay, it's discarded. Oh, we don't have to have to deal with them again. They're incarcerated. No, guess what? They're probably going to get out, and we can either help them learn the tools so they don't reoffend again, because that's the only thing they go to. Like going to prison. And my father told me this. He's like, it's like going to it's like con college. It's like going to school to learn how to be a better criminal. And until yeah. you have resources that people can come out and make a living and live a good life and be, provide for their family they're going to go right back to what's easiest for them or what they've learned how to do better.
2: Or what they want to do or what they have a desire to do as well. Like this is the frustration as well that I feel with um, especially sexual offenses because there's, there's such a low conviction rate. Like it's in States in Australia, it's less, it's 1%. Like this is such a small volume and then people will throw away the word recidivism. And I turned around and I go, I just, I hate, this talk about re- like reoffending is one thing being caught like you just said you went through that whole system being charged being like being somebody coming forward and telling the police about it that doesn't happen very often either being caught being interviewed being arrested having the evidence going through all of that going to court having the gavel put down you're guilty go away that's recidivism that's not knowing the reoffending rate of somebody that's maybe been caught one time you only know the tip of the iceberg and it just it gets mm-hmm. so frustrating for me because it's just yeah. like you don't know you how can you tell me that somebody that's murdered somebody has cut and come out 10 years later they've done it again how do you not know that that's the only that that's the only time or that it isn't the only time because if they've got out before they could get out again and what have they learned in crime university while they're in there, they've learned and they've evolved from the last time that they committed the crime, or they've changed their ways, or they've changed their methodologies, they've changed their disposal methodologies, or whatever that might be. You know, it's just, it's, it is. You're right. It's a system that's built to do exactly what it's doing, and it doesn't work. We need a new system.
1: It doesn't at all. <laughs> and, you know, I guess I should preface that like, like, I, there's my father will never be, my father is not reformable.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: He's never like if he comes gets out of prison, everybody is convinced he's coming to my door to kill me. You know what I mean? Yep. And I just, um, I think with especially with sexual abuse, you know, because again, like you just said, so many cases are not are not even reported. Forget the conviction rate; like, just not even report. We don't even they don't even get to the stage where there's an arrest or or bringing him for questioning. You know what I mean? I think that is a whole other subset of crime that is, well, also, it's it's nice to see that that's not exalted or done as podcasts and people like talking about the serial rapists, you know what I mean, and that those people aren't put on pedestals. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of these serial killers did things like that, but in ways like we don't, because I feel like that's so taboo, like, okay, we're not going to talk about child molesters, we're not going to talk about the, the these people who commit these violent acts towards children and, and, and women, and, you know, anyways, I digress on that point, but I feel like there's just so much work to be done all the way around, but where and where it really does start is like what you were saying with Tara and I, and you know, we are talking about these things and we're having conversations. And even if we're having conversations about how we're pissed because somebody did whatever and made this movie or whatever it is, just having the conversation, like the fact that people are having a conversations even now is, is such a major thing. Because at least we're talking about it. At least we're we're making the right steps in the right way, and we're talking about it, and we're understanding. And you know, it's interesting when you said about Tara because, you know, we talk about like nar- narcissism and um, you know, uh, a curse of control and manipulation and things like my, that. My father did that. John Meehan did to her mother, and you know, and, and countless other women. And I'm sure my father did it to countless other women. I was talking to a a friend of mine, actually the one who had found blondie, my chihuahua who just passed and she was married to a narcissist and she, and she's a very intelligent, very attractive, very wonderful woman. And she said to me, she goes, I'm a smart person. I'm a, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm successful. I have a college degree. I've run businesses. I own this. That. How did I fall for this? Like, why is nobody talking about this? And I said, exactly. Cause nobody's talking about it. Like it's just now becoming people are talking about it. Like now we're talking about these traits and all these things that people are communicating. I mean, that's a wonderful thing that's happening about that. You can start to see this, these patterns, and just and and at least stand up for yourself or understand these situations. And and I think these dialogues are really what helps too. Yeah, you know?
2: and a lot of the feedback I get is just how validating these discussions are for this podcast for different people as well. Absolutely. Um, but I do know we are running out of time. But I did want to kind of loop back. There's one thing that you did talk about that you said, like your father did try and try and kill you, and you, and you think that he would if he did get out now. After you know you went into the living room um, the next day after your mother's murder, from that you went to the like or the police got involved, and you were you had a detective on your side. What was the yeah, experience I guess, I guess, for you really. with that?
1: Yeah. So, so what happened is, is so, and I guess I really didn't get into that and I apologize. So what happened is, is that my father was like, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call you. He said, we're not gonna call the FBI. And I was like, okay, that's super weird. Like, why are we talking about the FBI? But filed that in my head. And when he left, I went to, I grabbed my mom and bought a portable phone. I went upstairs. I found this, I had stored my mother's friend's phone numbers in this little hat in a Garfield, Santa Claus Garfield hat that I had had And I pulled them out and I called everybody and I told them what happened. I said, you need to call the police. I can't call the police. My dad said, don't call the, call the police. And then the cops showed up. I, my grandmother, who was my father's you know, mother, who was extremely close with my mother, they were almost like sisters, she was ranting and raving, like the cops are here, blah, 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 blah. And they left and they ended up treating it as a missing persons case. And when I called my mother's friends the next day, I said, what's going on? It's treated as a missing persons case. I'm like, it's not a missing persons case. This detective came back and his name was David Messmore. And when my grandmother, you know, he came to the house and my grandmother, you know, I, I let him in and <laughs> you know, he comes in and, and he, he, she goes to call my father. And in that moment I pull him aside. I said, give me your card. I said, my mother, it, it, something has happened to her. Like she didn't just leave. She would never leave me. So happened to her. She's dead. And the next day, cause this is, you know, Christmas break. The next day, what happened is, is I went to school and walked to my principal's office. I said, you need to call this guy. And then I had Dave Massmore come down. And you talk about children, right? And being protected. Well, I'm at school. I'm in a safe place for me, a familiar and safe place where I can talk openly about what happened. And he, Dave came down and I told him everything. I told him about my father's girlfriend, my father's history, his proclivity for violence, the way he was violent with my mother and I, all of this, the divorce, everything what my mother said. And I said, look, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pull out the bookcases in the wall and look for her body. I'm going to go look for this one purse that she had that she would never leave home with. So if that purse is there, she would never have left with that, without that. Um, And I would meet with this police detective almost every day at my school to give him more and more information. Like my father would come home and he would have these marks on his hands. Or one night he... He had me rub Ben Gay on him, which is like an ointment for when you're sore with your muscles. And then he started behaving oddly. My father, who watched all these violent films, who used to tell me I was a little pussy and going to become a faggot when I grew up because I would cover my eyes. So they didn't want to see people getting shot and violence and things like that. He would, uh, he, I was playing a video game so I had gotten a Nintendo that year for Christmas and it was a fighting game. And he was like, I can't believe I bought that for That's a violent game. And I was like, who, who is this guy? All his behaviors leading up. What ultimately happened is that my father took me halfway through uh, middle of January 1990 to go to his office to pick up some paperwork. And on the way back, he stopped at the gas station. And when he went into the gas station, I was watching him through the windshield. I rummaged through his truck and I found two Polaroid photographs in in his center console of his truck. One was of a house that I'd never seen before. And the second one was of his girlfriend with her two kids sitting in front of a fireplace that was wrapped in plastic. And that he comes out. I told Dave Messmore about those, and that ultimately ended up being the house that they found my mother's body buried underneath the basement floor. Wow. Now, after all that happened, and right before my father's arrest, my father <clears throat> said, "You know, I have a medical convention coming up in in, in like a, a couple of days. Why don't you? Know, since your mom has been gone, I know it's been really hard on you. Why don't we have a father and son bonding trip to Florida?" And we'll go to the medical conference. It'll be like old days, like when we used to go down there with mommy. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, um, there's no medical conferences in the middle of January. Like all the medical conferences we used to go to, we used to go to them every year. We're at spring break. And I said to Dave, that's where I said, I've been able to swim since I was four years old. I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm not coming back from, from Florida. And that was when they yanked me out of the house.
0: Wow,
2: that's like I'm so sorry like it's it's overwhelming to hear what you but it's also like the innocence of you as such a young child going to school and how much you've taken ownership and protection almost over your mother and and what it means to have justice for her like you're so young at this stage, and you're you're intelligent enough though to to know what's happened to, to be actively taking. Information to be calling for help, to be advocating for her, like that's just absolutely astounding. And you know, you didn't understate it when you said you were the reason that she was found, and that he's obviously since gone to prison. Like she, she must be like looking down on you so proud because you've advocated to her, for her, with her so profoundly. Like that's just incredible. And as a kid, you know, like the the amount of admiration I have for like your inner child as well, like having to to look back on how innocent he was and how hard he tried. That's fucking amazing. But thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story. And I'd love to have you back to chat because oh, um, yeah. it's been, I I know that if it, if, if you and I was, were stuck in a room together and I am coming there next year, so we will be.
1: <laughs> I love it. it great.
2: I'd like to see somebody else try and get a word in Edgeway's. Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Kara's very quiet, so she wasn't <laughs> gonna go in. But she would just be like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> "I'm sure." I did just Obviously, think that,
2: like, she'd sit there and she'd just be like, "Oh, <laughs> trying to get in." <laughs> but no, I just want to say thank you for coming on and being so candid with your story and sharing what you have. I know um it doesn't get any easier, um but it's something that you've you know, you've dedicated your life to, and you have changed a lot of lives. And I hope that people can learn from this and listen to this and, and hear some of your story as well. And and maybe it resonates with them and it gives them validation or it makes them see a red flag that they're going through. Maybe they can leave and things like that. And, you know, this is why we do this. So yeah. again, Collier, I just want to say thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Madeline. I appreciate it.
2: Wow. Thank you so much, Collier, for coming on and sharing your story as I said at the beginning, Collier has been kind enough to give you a link, which means that if you are in Australia or other, you will be able to watch the documentary A Murder in Mansfield, which is the subject that we've just discussed as well. Please also take the time to listen to his podcast, Moving Past Murder. It is incredibly interesting. I have absolutely binged it over the past few days and I would really recommend that you go and listen to that as well. So if you can, go, rate, review, subscribe and make sure that you show Collier all of the love that he deserves. And sending my love to you all at this time as well. Have a Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye.